we were talking about the film real early on when I was writing the script, and I said, you know, I want, you know, I want a classical score. I, you know, I want the, you know, the, the uh, corn gold kind of feel about this thing. It's a, it's an old-fashioned kind of movie, and and I want that grand uh, soundtrack that you used to have on movies. And he said, the guy you got to talk to is John Williams. You know, he did Jaws. I love him. He's the greatest composer ever lived. You got to talk to him. And so I did. I mean, it was really Stephen that introduced us and and recommended him. And, um, you know, I talked to him and said, okay. And he said he was interested. So he he did it, and he's a, a dream to work with. You know, it's the he's a, a most wonderful collaborator. That was George Lucas, and this is Underscore, a podcast of music and story. Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of movie music one film at a time. My name is Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will. A monumental episode today. This week we continue our discussion of the score to Star Wars. Given the size, scope, and significance of the score, this will be the first in a two-part spotting session series of episodes to allow for as thorough of an analysis of Star Wars as possible. And honestly, we're just having so much fun with these episodes, we don't really want it to end. I couldn't agree more. For clarity, the version of the film we're discussing today and which we'll be recording our upcoming audio commentary to is the original 1977 theatrical cut of the film. Without getting into a broader conversation, this is not necessarily the easiest version of the film to come by in 2018. Right. Outside of older VHS or Laserdisc copies, the last official release of this cut was a bonus feature on the 2006 DVD release, which was a transfer from the Laserdisc. Though there are several popular fan preservation projects circulating online, including the wonderful Star Wars Despecialized Edition. Our goal is always to make following along with the show as convenient as possible, but in the case of Star Wars, we can't really imagine any other way of approaching this historic score than by looking at the original authoritative version. Well, without further ado, let's examine Star Wars, composed by John Williams, orchestrations by Herbert Spencer, Al Woodbury, Arthur Morton, and Angela Morley, written and directed by George Lucas. 1M1, 20th Century Fox Fanfare. Our film begins on one of the great studio logo themes of the 20th century, Alfred Newman's infamous 20th Century Fox fanfare. In retrospect, the theme seems almost tailor-made for Star Wars. It's rooted in the key of B-flat, with brilliant brass leading the charge. Now, when making the mix for the film, they wanted to locate a stereo version of the fanfare. Not being able to track down a master recording, the team utilized actually the four-track commercial soundtrack to River of No Return and mixed it down to two-channel stereo. While this was replaced on subsequent releases, this version with degraded and distorted sound provided a wonderful contrast for the high-fidelity recording that would follow. Newman's theme is elegant in terms of orchestration with a direct melodic clarity. The heroic brass chords feel characteristic of an older era of Hollywood harmony, and the evocative string figures set the perfect tone for a rich, romantic space opera. After our militaristic drum corps-esque snare drum introduction, the melody begins incessantly repeating two pitches a minor second apart. They emphasize the fifth and the flattened sixth, and are accompanied by similar harmonic motion. The brass, which began voicing two octaves of a root position major chord, oscillate between artonic chord, B-flat, and a diminished chord built on the second scale degree, C. The rhythmic motive from the opening brass fanfare, which has a masculine and almost pompous character, is continued as an answering chordal counterpart to the ascending string phrase in the second half of the melody. The piece comes to a close, again resolving to our tonic chord by way of the C half-diminished chord, and is codified with a final brass blast. As the years have passed, it seems impossible to separate this theme from the film it precedes, and for good reason. The Fox fanfare seems to say, sit back, grab some popcorn, and set course for a galaxy far, far away.
1M2, main title. The film's title and opening narration appear as bold yellow text across a field of stars. A sonorous B-flat blast in the orchestra unveils our film in vivid color. This is a tour de force of orchestration and an introduction of many parts, of our primary theme and the melodic taste of our composer, which previous guest and frequent Williams collaborator Conrad Pope described so eloquently. I'm just always amazed at how he spots a film. And with John, he has an extraordinary gift for very direct, simple diatonic melody that is then transformed by a remarkable harmonic palette that surprises you. It either confirms the diatonicism that you hear, or you sort of go, oh my God, I didn't realize that that could happen. Right. It's also an introduction of our London Symphony Orchestra, every section of which is given a showcase moment. It's also an introduction to the sound of this recording, which composer and previous guest Joe Kramer fondly recalled. I think it was Eric Tomlinson was talking in an interview about working with John Williams, and they used to right. like, in the analog days, to push the orchestra into what they called Vuvu land, <laughs> the VU, sure. which they were pronouncing Vu, uh, where they would kind of push it into the red, and then you'd get a, a little bit of analog distortion, but it would make things sound like they have snap and bite. This cue boldly hits its initial two on-screen sync points. The film's title and the beginning of the scrolling text narration. As these words float away into the far reaches of space, a lonely piccolo sings out across the starfield, accompanied by a dissonant quasi-augmented chord in the orchestra, C, E, G, and A flat, built from the double harmonic major scale. This otherworldly harmonic sound fills much of what is to come in the score and saga. The camera pans down as a frenetic passage weaves through the string section. The tam-tam, or gong, signals our stopped camera and our new tableau, Two strange planets. Aggressive repeated dissonant chords a la Holst's Mars blast in full orchestral tutti as a spaceship flies over us, pursued shortly thereafter by a craft of unimaginable size. A new driving tempo sets the stage for our first statement of the starship or rebel fanfare. Williams exits the queue deftly under the loud sound effect of the ship's engines and laser fire. One M3, the war. The rebel spaceship is boarded and a laser battle ensues. The score enters seamlessly, dovetailed off the previous queue. We see the shiny white interior of the small rebel spaceship, which seems to be bustling with crew members and droids running in all directions. Our music cue begins with an ominous march rhythm in a low pedal C in the celli, basses, and timpani, accompanying our first dialogue of the film between C-3PO and R2-D2 as the spaceship or rebellion fanfare is played bitonally in mellow horns and flutes atop this incessant brass rhythm. The dissonances between these two ideas seem to perfectly embody the spirit of this spunky band of rebels against the impending doom of an all-powerful empire. Williams brilliantly sets this fanfare in a key which each chord is extremely dissonant with the pedal C, even modulating, keeping a similar bitonal sound as the orchestration builds and the motives grow higher in pitch. Eventually, this ominous rhythmic idea builds into a full tutti in the strings, growing ever more looming and threatening as we anticipate the Imperial firefight. Williams begins this cue with such confidence and clarity in the orchestration, one could easily picture this opening as the first movement in a concert suite. The contrast of the orchestra sections devoted to the pedal and those to the fanfare is so strong that Williams' bitonality is hardly abrasive. And actually, this complex harmonic sound will follow us throughout the film. Our looming strings are interrupted by a brass-led fanfare of threatening minor chords as we see the large Imperial cruiser suck the small rebel spaceship into its dock. The 2D string motive returns, but right as it hits its climax, we cut out, only to hear these lonely woodwind chords that emphasize a tritone. 
This little beat is fascinating because it helps keep the tension high without needing to overblow the march rhythm. It's almost as though we see the soldiers pause before the door of the ship is blown open. As sparks fly from the door, we have a sudden change of tempo and a big swell of action music ensues over a smoky laser battle in the corridor of the ship. Williams pulls out all the stops here. We hear florid string runs punctuated by low brass hits. The melodic idea which enters here consists of these dissonant chord clusters, first in the woodwinds where they are doubled with xylophone and piano and are repeated in the horns and trombones. The contrast in orchestration over the same musical material seems to reflect the opposing forces in this battle. The weak and fledgling rebels represented by the squeaky sounding woodwinds and xylophone contrasted with the threatening and imposing imperial brass statement. The excited string motor eventually overpowers the winds and brass, transitioning the music as the shooting briefly stops. We cut to an iconic shot that really exploits the third dimension as we see C-3PO and R2-D2 cross this volley of laser fire. We hear the rebellion fanfare played in the trumpets and repeated in the low brass as elements of our string motor continue to provide a sense of action. Rising string statements punctuate the rebellion fanfare and the smoke clears to reveal our villain. With two declamatory minor chords, we know that Darth Vader has arrived. Williams brilliantly cuts out, except for faint sustained contrabasses, clearing the stage for the first occurrence of Vader's infamous breathing noises. Another batch of brassy minor chords sting Vader's motif and give us our first in a great tradition of Williams' Star Wars transitions. Musically, while the orchestra waited quietly during Vader's debut, our energy hasn't died. The momentum of the last statement we heard continues on, transformed to help our cut. This captures one of the truly powerful elements to William's Star Wars storytelling. It isn't merely maintaining interest across an edit, but adding significance to that moment. Throughout the film, and eventually the saga, the score supports an important spiritual concept to the story. These characters are part of a greater destiny, their paths guided in part by the hand of fate, or let's say the way of the Force. This moment in particular, this action of Princess Leia, sets off the entire fable and ultimately connects us to Luke destroying the Death Star, to Rey flying off to an uncharted island, and beyond. Furthermore, and this is really delicious, our musical introduction to Princess Leia is a transformation of the Darth Vader material we just heard. Unbeknownst to Williams, perhaps a subtle clue of a transition of focus from father to daughter. A mysterious tremolo string texture accompanies our very first statement of the Force theme, or Ben's theme, which is then woven into the first harmonically troubled statement of Leia's theme. Metaphorically, the use of these two leitmotifs in this way makes complete sense as Leia is leaving the plans to the Death Star as well as her message to Ben Kenobi inside R2. Though the audience is unaware, the music almost literally foreshadows what's to come in the story. As the strings continue to vamp on the harmony of Leia's theme subtly under more droid dialogue, our next hard cut is accented strongly in a heavy Stravinskyan ostinato with brass and strings as we see stormtroopers taking rebel soldiers hostage. Williams subtly lessens the texture for the upcoming dialogue by not only having diminuendo in the brass, but cutting out to just strings as he quietly prepares the next moment of Vader interrogating the rebel officer. Sliding trombone portamenti and eerie high strings almost seem to comically portray the stature of our villain. As Darth chokes out this poor man, the orchestra reaches a big crescendo and a fateful transitional string melody underscores Vader's Commander Tear This Ship Apart as we again prepare for another encounter with the princess. 1M4, the escape hatch. The princess is captured and the droids escape. This time, we hear her theme briefly in the flute atop tonally ambiguous harmony as we see her preparing to fire on the lurking Imperial troopers. John teases up for another dramatic action cue with a flurried string run, but is alas cut short as Leia is stunned and captured. A beautifully innocent oboe solo covers a brief interaction between the droids, and as R2 opens the door to the escape pod, we hear the first real statement of what we call the Imperial theme or motive. Here, seeming to function as either a call to adventure or mystery. 
As guns fire and the droids need to make a quick escape, the orchestra swells to one of the most exquisite moments in the entire score, a passage of music never to be repeated in the saga. This gorgeous and painful string melody seems to revel in one of Williams' favorite musical settings, flight, which here showcases a string melody in octaves, accompanied by an unexpected sequence of major seventh harmony. This twisted and highly romantic statement harmonically resolves to a feeling of safety as the droids escape to the planet below. A beautiful tritonic statement in the brass closes out this moment, but the cue is far from finished. Williams turns on a dime as we cut back to Leia being taken to Lord Vader, our first long stretch of score utilizing the Imperial motif. We hear it first in ominous low woodwinds, and as the scene plays out, the music continues to stay out of the way of the dialogue, always subtly adding to the mood. The cue finally reaches its end after Vader's now famous line, there will be no one to stop us this time. A dramatic and evil statement of the rising imperial fanfare plays, sustaining its final chord of a dissonant C minor over B natural, as glistening harps and strings vamp to a fade out over a change of scene. The two droids walking in the desert. 1M5 slash 2M1, Desert Song. As C-3PO wanders off alone through the arid desert of Tatooine, he encounters a transport in the distance. We alluded to this cue several weeks ago when we discussed the temporary score to Star Wars. This scene was tempted with a highly dissonant bitonal excerpt from Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. The similarities in tone and harmonic color between these two pieces at the beginning are obvious. In terms of orchestration, however, Williams makes several unorthodox choices here that distinguish it from the Rite of Spring. First of all, he displaces the standard orchestral register by putting the oboes and even the first clarinets above the flute. The dissonance here is stacked in a carefully precise way, with a minor ninth between the highest and lowest voices in the texture. The tempo of this cue seems to match the eighth note falling motive with the timing of C-3PO's footsteps in the sand. Eerie, muted violins in their highest register characterize the shifting sand in the low brass chords as well as an unsettling harp arpeggio set a menacing tone. A highly ornamental figure played in the bassoon is followed by the piccolo and ultimately the clarinet. This melodic idea that seems to characterize C-3PO in the desert makes us think of the blazing sun and the caustic terrain he faces. As that chordal, oscillating motive is transferred from the woodwinds to the brass, the harmony is changed slightly. Here we have a more familiar, minor, triadic paintbrush sound that we associate so much with John's writing. Though these triads in the trumpets are still plagued by similar polytonal dissonances in the horns. Eventually, this same motive is adopted by the strings, where it ultimately reaches its end on a high, mysterious chord accompanied by a rolled harp glissando. While this is certainly a brief cue, it makes a lasting impression on the audience and is one of the first pieces of score material in the film that's dialed up quite loudly in the mix. The music gives the movie a dangerous tone and actually makes out the character of C-3PO to seem a little bit malevolent. He'll do no better, referring to R2. With that eerie score underneath, the plight of these robots is relatable on human terms, and there's a sense of hopelessness, until at last, 3PO spots a transport. 2M2, the little people. Roaming alone through the Tatooine desert, R2 is abducted by a gang of small scavengers. This is a cue that underwent a series of minor revisions throughout the recording session. Some of them possibly tonal changes from Lucas, and others seem to suggest yet more alterations to the edit of the film, some two months before the premiere. At any rate, in the theatrical cut, the opening of this scene of R2 roaming alone in the hot desert caverns plays to chilly silence. It's appropriate in that we're kept in suspense, hearing the lonely whistling of the droid and glimpsing strange glowing-eyed hooded figures peeking out through gaps in the rock. It's possible that the cue originally entered during this segment. Well, there's several bars from three or so different sections edited out of the cue in the film version. If you take the complete recording and synchronize the midpoint to the corresponding music in the film, the beginning enters significantly earlier and seems to stab certain shots of the Jawas. 
This suggests a possible change by Lucas during the dubbing of the film, scooting the entrance later and eliminating several subsequent bars so that the rest of the hit points remained intact. It's also possible that those excised bars, one of the cut sections is extremely distinctive, supported on-screen action that was cut out of the film, and the entrance is where it was always intended. In fact, the earliest draft of the cue started even later than the entrance here in the theatrical cut, where no music is to be heard to support poor R2, alone in this desert canyon, spied upon and finally attacked by a band of tiny Jawas. The music enters after all of the suspense, the sudden action, and the comedic beat of lumbering R2 tipping over. A breezy run in the English horns kicks off our cue, the beginning of which is driven by an incessant eighth-note pulse in pizzicato violas, colored by more bassoon runs as well as sporadic statements of triadic flute and harp. The pizzicato violas are joined by Pitt's violins, and first a major second rub, then by more violins in sort of a dominant seventh cluster, G, A, and C sharp, before Williams pivots to a new tableau, our topsy-turvy little people march. Possibly constructed from an octatonic scale, our accompanimental backdrop features close dissonances in the horns, answered by an oompa and low string pits moving in tritones. Playing atop this texture is our Jawa theme, reedy, ornamental, and highlighting some of the unique dissonances in our octatonic setting. The theatrical version interrupts our first statement of the melody, stopping just short of the climbing, sing-songy march figure, and thrusting us directly into what we've called the B statement, an extremely memorable passage in triadic trumpets as we cut to a wide shot of the Jawas heading toward their sand crawler in the setting sun. R2 is then vacuumed up into the vessel and Williams abruptly changes tone. R2 comes to on a heap of junk, accompanied by high portamento violin lines, setting an uneasy, mysterious mood. But the disappearance of brass and louder orchestral dynamics helps place us inside this confined space. There's a particularly lovely musical moment that accompanies the gonk droid, a balletic piccolo feature complemented by solo tuba. As R2 crawls forward, harmonized bassoons present a quasi-variation on the Jawa theme. Once R2-D2 and C-3PO are reunited, John brings in the full orchestra, climaxing in a memorable march figure just as we reach another wipe transition to possibly the next morning as several stormtroopers follow the trail of the escaped droids. Solo tuba plays the imperial motif, stinging this shot of the troopers. This is arguably one of Williams' most brilliant exits to a cue, extending the music beyond the previous scene to seamlessly catch this important on-screen action, and then fading out almost without notice. 2M3, The Moisture Farm, More Little People. The reunited droids awake inside the Java Sandcrawler and are sold to Owen Lars and his young nephew, Luke. We cut back to the interior of the Sandcrawler, and the queue opens with a mysterious minor triadic passage in the flutes, followed by similarly triadic and pointed responses in the double reeds. This stretch of music seems almost docile and subdued, but it's soon interrupted by C-3PO's line, Wake up! As R2 is jostled awake, the score comes to life with a return of that bumbling, tritonic march that we associate with the Jawas. Orchestrated almost identically to the previous cue, we first hear English horn on the decorative melody, which is eventually doubled in octaves with the flute, ultimately leading to the same ambiguous minor paintbrush of trumpets in the B section, as well as the tuba solo. This version of the Little People characterizes the interior of the Sandcrawler at first with a subdued sense of dynamics in the orchestra, but does finally return us to the outside deserts of Tatooine, where it seems the Jawas have arrived at the Lars Moisture Farm. 
The score is effective here because of its reliance on melodic consistency, making no mistake about this tune being directly identified with these disgusting little creatures, in the words of C-3PO. However, this cue abandons the Jawa theme ultimately, with a rising string passage in octaves, leading us into our first presentation of Luke's theme outside of the main title. William's taste here is sublime, only surrendering the topsy-turvy, motor-like Jawa material once we hear Luke being beckoned by his aunt truly cementing that melody with the name of this character. The theme is introduced in an innocent way that almost plays on the domestic, pastoral quality of Luke and his family. The melody is played in solo French horn and eventually woodwind octaves with these lovely offbeat chord responses in the strings. This interesting accompanying rhythm continues the momentum of the Jawa material while transitioning into an entirely different mood, one characterized by an unrelated key, highlighting a contrasting orchestral color, whereas the music of the little people was intended to sound alien, exotic, and slightly humorous, these few brief statements of Luke's theme communicate the naive and kind-hearted hero of Luke Skywalker. Our cue exits on a pleasant tonic chord sustaining in the strings as the music fades out under the ensuing dialogue between Owen and the droids. 2M4, R2. C-3PO convinces Luke and Uncle Owen to take a chance on purchasing R2-D2. The shortest cue in the film may also be the sweetest. Entering after Owen's line, we'll take that blue one. This piece of music, titled simply R2, might rightly be considered the theme of our lovable droid in this film. If so, his music here is quintessential Star Wars, and could be at home in any entry in the saga. A playful line, high and airy triadic flutes is complemented by an imitative response in bassoons. Rising arpeggios and pizzicato strings fill the space left by the winds. The horns take center stage for a moment, expressing some unique dissonances before the flutes conclude the cue with a brief twist on the opening phrase. This is one of the truly conclusive endings of a cue in Star Wars, and this pure resolution accompanies the film's first fade-out as Luke and the droids head towards the Lars homestead. 3M1, The Princess Appears While queening the newly purchased droids, Luke stumbles across a hologram message from Princess Leia. Beginning with an alarming low statement in cone sordino or muted strings, the cue opens abruptly as Luke is pushed to the ground by R2's hollow projector being activated inadvertently. As Leia's hologram appears before Luke, we see that it's stuck in place like a broken record, repeating the now famous words, Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you are my only hope. Leia's iconic line is accompanied atop high string tremolos by a mysterious falling motive in the flutes and clarinets, doubled by celeste. This interesting little motive is harmonized in minor third pairs, each falling by half-step. The orchestration here is marvelous because the idea is handed off from flutes to clarinets throughout each bar, but with the third flute doubling the top note of the clarinets. This dovetailing effect is often used for utility in orchestral wind writing as a means of allowing ample time for the players to breathe, but here Williams uses this device to add a deeper emotional layer to the music. The woodwinds trade off these eerie minor thirds in an antiphonal fashion, almost like a hocket. The falling motive seems to be a remnant of the Stravinsky-esque desert music from earlier, but here is used almost as a leitmotif for mystery, and the silences between the woodwind statements characterize the broken record effect of Leia's line. When Luke inquires about the image of the beautiful young woman projected in the hologram, we hear a lovely statement of Leia's theme in the solo oboe, as C-3PO recalls the mysterious girl as a person of some importance, I believe, on their previous voyage. The melody is set atop dreamlike harp glissandi and tremolos and violins and viola. The elegance and romance of Leia's theme here suggests Luke's fascination not only with this beautiful figure in front of him, but seems to describe the mysterious spark of destiny this moment sets in place. This cue provides the first presentation of the princess's theme which reaches its full melodic conclusion and is supported by more stable harmony than we've heard until this point in the film. 
After a brief interlude of mysterioso English horn and cello, as Luke recalls Old Ben, who lives beyond the Dune Sea, we again return to Leia's theme, once again played in solo oboe. This time, low puffs of harmony in the strings support the theme, and the cue ends as it began, circling back to that falling motive from earlier. The music fades out perfectly as Luke removes the restraining bolt on R2, terminating the message and the score along with it. Three M Two Lost R Two, Binary Sunset. After discussing his future with his aunt and uncle, a resigned Luke steps outside to reflect on the setting suns of his homeworld. This cue underwent the most major revision of any in the score, and as it happens, the finished piece is perhaps the most famous and treasured in all of Star Wars music, or all of Williams music, or all of film music in general. In musical theater, this moment of the hero's story would likely open into what's called the I Want song, where the protagonist opens their heart, sharing their dreams and desires through music. This is what Dorothy does, searching over the rainbow from her farm in Kansas, and with the help of Williams underscore, this is what Luke does in Star Wars, cementing the course of the story and eventual saga in mere seconds. The cue opens with a restrained statement of Luke's theme and flutes, set against an almost Americana harmony in strings, while Owen and Baru disagree over how to regard Luke's future. At the next cut, Williams immediately turns a corner, setting up the now-famous tableau of Binary Sunset. Considered by many of us as the definitive rendition of the Force theme, this was not the initial approach to the scene. While there may have been slightly different on-screen information, it's actually difficult to sync up the original alternate cue to the finished cut, this first approach played entirely new thematic material over this moment, a darker, more ominous and brooding statement. It's gorgeous music, but now so difficult to picture along the scene we know so well. Interestingly, while not note for note, a very similar musical setting and phrasing appeared 38 years later in The Force Awakens, when John musically unveils the rediscovered Luke Skywalker on his island cliff overlooking the sea. In March of 1977, it was George Lucas's idea to drastically adjust the approach to this scene, apparently even suggesting that John employ the theme he'd composed for Ben Kenobi. John said of the change in 1977, When George heard it, he asked if I could replace it with Ben's theme. George's feeling was that since Luke dreamed of leaving Tatooine and becoming an adventurous space pilot, Ben's theme is better in that context. It gives a reflective, contemplative feeling to the score. This moment then, under the influence of Star Wars writer and director George Lucas, perhaps forever transformed the theme to be one that represents the Force, fate, or destiny. LSO Principal Horn David Cripps's playing here is so moving, giving the character an aria he doesn't have the words for himself. The climax of the Ben slash Force theme is given to a lush string tootie as Luke seems to resolve himself and turn away. Williams keenly avoids a resolution to the theme, turning instead into a statement of the rebel starship fanfare, perhaps signaling not only Luke's resolve and purpose, but his future as a hero with the Alliance. A dark turn in low strings marks Luke's finding of C-3PO, who's searching in vain after a missing R2-D2. Together they step outside and Luke peers through his macro binoculars across the Tatooine desert. John seamlessly weaves in and out of Luke and Ben's themes here, foreshadowing perhaps the imminent meeting of the two characters. Both settings are absolutely singular, a lovely farm boy Americana to Luke's theme and a dark mysterioso with pitched percussion for Ben. As our scene comes to a close, Williams plays the transition of night to day with a deliciously dissonant Star Warsian chord in high strings.
3M3, the Sand Speeder. The next morning, Luke and C-3PO take the search for R2 in the Sand Speeder. While much of this cue was edited out of the film due to the scene being cut down significantly, the music in this sequence really leaves an impression on the series. This bit of score develops upon that antiphonal falling motive we heard several cues before, this time in the horns and trumpets. While being a fairly brass-heavy piece of music, the real stars of this cue are the percussion. Williams uses anvil, log drums, and pitched rototoms to depict the Tuscan Raiders, or Sand People and the large, furry banthas which they ride upon. This is a perfect example of using orchestration to thematically identify characters, even without the use of pitch material at all. The barbaric percussion is punctuated by brass hits and fast rips in the horn. Eventually, we hear another instance of William's minor triadic paintbrush, energizing the falling motive from before. Throughout this cue, Williams utilizes unconventional orchestral arranging such as dual pianos in the low register as well as colenio strings, where the players literally hit the wood of the bow against the string in a violent and aggressive fashion. This technique, colenio, is often associated with Mars, the first movement of the planets, which we've already examined as having a stylistic influence on the galactic sound of Star Wars. The percussive energy of this cue is abruptly cut as we return to Luke and Threepio, who have discovered R2. A final sustained pitch and low strings fade into the sound of the engine, and once again make room for the dialogue. 3M4 slash 4M1. The Sandman attacks. Luke and Threepio have finally found R2, but take cover to look out for approaching Tusken Raiders. We begin with a whip crack in the orchestra, a blast of horns and pitched percussion, followed by a frenetic climbing line in the low strings as the trio reacts to the distant sounds of the sand people. Williams builds a great crescendo in the orchestra from this line, which then drops out suddenly as we cut to the view from Luke's macro binoculars. From the safety of their perch overlooking these banthas, we hear a lovely, delicate, evocative phrase in solo flute, set atop a gentle rising arpeggio in harp and celeste. Suddenly, a sand person sneaks up on Luke and attacks him. The score slams into an almost 60s sci-fi spirit. We hear horn rips set against an aggressive slapstick from the percussion section. The timpani and tuned toms that scored the sand people a few moments ago return to highly color the backdrop of this action. While the horn rip and slapstick command most of our attention, Williams injects all sorts of animation into the rest of the orchestra, moving counterlines in the strings and responsatory blasts of the trumpets and flutes. Lucas cuts away from the action to a series of distant shots of the Desert Canyon, and John silences most of the orchestra, save for ominous strings, soft and high and almost still. Gently, we hear pulses of muted horns against this sustained high texture, and we nearly take the point of view of R2, hidden unseen in a small canyon cave. John begins a memorable little device, these muted horn pulses against a rising, falling string portamento, accompanied by the log drum percussion of the Tuscan Raiders. The piano that doubles the celli in this cue marks one of the few moments in the score when it's audible. The device lets up as we hear an interesting desert-like statement in triadic bassoons, a great phrase that you could easily imagine expanded if circumstances on screen were different. As we hear a strange yell from the desert, we also hear a dramatic run from most of the orchestra, stinging a moment of impact and then dying away. At the downbeat of that bar, John wrote into the score, Old Man. What transpires is an ominous but enchanting stretch of suspense, descending triadic flutes set against tremolo strings as a robed, unidentifiable person approaches the fallen Luke. The flute phrase evokes the desert, but also something ancient. Fans of Williams may experience a foreshadowing of the kind of emotional language of the Ark of the Covenant. This flute phrase repeats unchanged as we and R2 almost die from the suspense. And then the old man lifts his hood to Gosandi from harps and mark tree. High tremolo strings announce the reveal of Ben Kenobi, portrayed unmistakably by the legendary Sir Alec Guinness. His theme then plays in a blend of flute, bassoon, and horn. Coloring what could be a straightforward, heroic presentation, Williams presents an unsettled, upward-moving line in the bottom of the orchestra, in basses and celli. We're not quite at ease until Luke is awoken and identifies Ben, set to a simple low note in basses and celli as we exit the queue underneath their conversation. 
4M2, Obi-Wan Kenobi. When Luke asks old Ben about an Obi-Wan Kenobi, he reveals his true identity. The look in Ben's eyes when Luke says the name of a former Jedi Knight is what ignites this cue. A mystical series of pitches are played high in the violins and flutes over muted string tremolos which seem to imply a G minor triad. Scalar runs in the celeste suggest a wistful yet sinister quality as Ben is reminded of his colorful past, brilliantly woven in the silences between lines of dialogue. Ben's theme is set in the English horn, giving this presentation a prophetic quality, which appropriately underscores Obi-Wan's archetypal role as the wise old sage or storyteller who instills the hero with the virtues needed for his journey. The melody here is continually punctuated by that mystical motif, recontextualizing it as the harmony changes, while the tremolo string tapestry maintains throughout the entirety of the theme's presentation. As the melody is handed off to the celli, the melodic climax is held, and the clarinets play increasing stepwise pitches against it, leading us into a sudden change of mood as Ben hears the sound of banthas, alerting him and Luke to the presence of more sand people. The muted brass and portamento string effects from the previous cue return here, which, along with the performance of Sir Alec Guinness, alert the audience to danger as well. As we cut to a shot of C-3PO's severed arm, we hear a brief statement of the B-section throne room material and solo horn. This is the lost theme we suspect to be associated to the Old Republic. In J.W. Rinsler's great book, The Making of Star Wars, Williams touched on this motive somewhat uncharacteristically, saying, it's a theme I am very fond of. The music that ensues plays the melodrama of a wounded 3PO with a taste of tragedy in the strings. The texture harmonically is emphasizing open fourth and fifth intervals, almost implying the opening intervals of both Luke and Ben's themes. There's an evocative rising motive that gets passed around in the string family, leading to a beautiful emotional climax. The cue ends with a series of string harmonies, again emphasizing open intervals a la Miklos Roja in the great biblical epics. As they bring C-3PO to his feet, a wipe transition carries us into the next scene. 4M2A, The Force. In Kenobi's home, he tells Luke the story of his father's death, introducing him to the idea of the Force. It's worth noting that the opening of this scene, including Kenobi handing Luke his father's lightsaber, plays to no underscore. The cue begins after Ben's line, before the dark times, before the Empire, as Luke silences his lightsaber and Ben prepares to tell his story. In accompanying this old tale, Williams brings life to Ben's recollection and hopefully ignites our imaginations, even perhaps signaling us to pay careful attention. It's difficult to imagine a 21st century film leaving this moment as pure story without flashback or visual aid, but what remains here is arguably one of the film's most significant moments. Musically, we begin with a somber statement of the imperial motif. Written originally for a blend of alto flute and bassoon, a change from the podium handed this material to solo clarinet, here so beautifully and soberly rendered. Underneath the clarinet is a unique texture of low harp and piano, again a moment where we can make it out. The answering phrase in a pair of flutes adds haunting emotional color to Ben's story of Vader's seduction and downfall. Responding to something Kenobi says, Luke asks, the force? And perfectly on cue, the theme of the force plays on solo horn, quite similarly to when Luke looked out on the binary suns, but now set a semitone higher. In this sequence, we hear only the first half of the theme. Luke seems to be reflecting on what Ben has said, his first description of this spiritual plane being profound but succinct. The Force is what gives a Jedi its power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. Williams lets us ruminate on the idea as the last note of solo horn and high strings elegantly diminuendo, making way for our next cue. 4M3 the princess reappears. In the presence of Obi-Wan, R2-D2 reveals the entirety of the hologram message. We return once again to the tableau of tremolo strings and dreamy harp glissandi from the previous encounter with the hologram, and once again the melody is presented as an oboe solo. Much like Leia's message itself, however, this presentation of the material is complete, without any of the adornments of mystery as before. 
The flute, clarinet, and horn carry the final leg of the theme, and we close with a dreamy final chord, a C major sonority, complemented by a Lydian suspension of sorts, a perfect embodiment of hope. Four M four, learn about the Force. Kenobi compels Luke to join him in helping the princess and the rebellion. Luke has no reply to Ben's line. I need your help, Luke. She needs your help. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. And Williams fills the silence with this cue, which opens with a pleading theme in the violas, unique to this moment. As a side note, I wouldn't be surprised if this had been tempted into Rogue One at some point. The setting and melodic character seem to subtly suggest Michael Cicchino's theme for Jin Erso. Back to our movie, Kenobi says, learn about the Force, Luke, and supporting him is William's theme for he and the Force. Luke appears moved, but ultimately unable to drop everything and join him. He offers to at least help transport him to Moss Eisley, to which Ben famously replies, you must do what you think is right, of course. We sense a crescendo brewing in the orchestra. Sure enough, as we reach our next optical wipe to the blackness of space, we hear our imperial fanfare. This time scoring a Star Destroyer as it approaches, in its first appearance in the film, the Death Star. This final chord decays underneath the conversation of this imperial executive meeting. 5M1, a home destroyed. When Luke and Ben find the Jawas killed by the hand of the Empire, Luke fears they may have traced the droids home. Opening with a grave trumpet solo, fitting for a morbid setting, we see the burned bodies of the Jawas scattered around the remains of the Sandcrawler. Williams' music here is foreboding and bursting with pathos. This scene in particular paints the grim reality of a ruthless galactic empire, mirroring in a sense the real-world tragedies of the 20th century. The music balances the moment-to-moment -moment realizations of Luke Skywalker with the macabre visuals. Williams scores this scene as a moment of tragedy, but also instills it with elements of almost a murder mystery. Somber, hopeless brass chords, as well as piercing violins, accompany Luke's question to Ben. Why would Imperial troops want to slaughter Jawas? In an instant, he realizes the danger to his aunt and uncle. Suddenly, a chromatic legato string motor begins in the double basses as Luke runs to his speeder heading home. The string motor grows throughout the string section, climbing higher in register. As we cut to a side shot of the speeder across the desert landscape, we hear a fateful statement of Ben's theme in the trombones. As the melody reaches the end of the phrase, the string motor ends, now sustaining increasingly uncertain downward harmonies as the speeder slows. The camera pans around, revealing a burning homestead. Now the harmony consists of chromatically rising minor chords in the strings, with a creeping horn solo climbing higher and higher until a dismal chord is struck, accented by timpani and bass drum hits once we see the charred bodies of Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. Williams brilliantly transfers the emotional weight of this moment into one of the most moving elegies of his career, a grief-stricken display of the force theme in the celli and horns with the legato motor returning to a company in the winds. The inertial movement in this passage reflects Luke's very destiny being inescapable. This is the turning point in the film where the hero accepts his call to adventure. In the final moments of the scene as Luke stands before the devastated moisture farm, Williams quotes Dies Irae, a medieval Latin hymn, The Day of Wrath, the melody of which is considered to be one of the most quoted in all of music literature. It was often quoted by classical composers to signify death, as it has been used liturgically as part of several requiem masses. John's quote of Dies Irae acknowledges the death of Luke's family and his archetypal role as the resigned hero by connecting it to the lineage of music and of classical storytelling. In a narratively evocative cut, we see two TIE fighters approaching the Death Star as if to remind us of the perpetrators of our hero's grief. John again employs that fanfare of evil, immediately followed by a brass-led march, featuring the Imperial motive in the tuba, as we see Darth Vader and two Imperial soldiers walking down the corridor to the room where Leia is being held captive. 
Upon the playing of her theme, John hearkens to the legato motor from the previous scene, this time in the horn, almost an echo of the imperial devastation all the way across the galaxy. As Vader speaks, Williams accompanies his dialogue with ominous, planing minor triads in the low woodwinds. As we see this floating torture machine come closer to Leia, the camera pans forward on the needle as the shrieking strings become animated, holding their final pitch on a forceful tremolo, which is quickly cut off by the hydraulic door slamming shut. This cue ends with a militaristic timpani feature, almost as if the agony of the pitched instruments became silenced behind the door along with the princess. 5M2, a hive of villainy. Luke returns to the droids and Kenobi, who is already aware of his tragic news. A climbing phrase constructed from unstable augmented triads accompanies the return of Luke and his speeder to the wreckage of the Sandcrawler. As he steps out to walk towards Ben, we hear an elegiac statement in solo English horn, which leads to much beautiful counterpoint with solo clarinet and strings. It may be a bit of a stretch, but I wonder whether there might have been some other lost theme of Star Wars, some circular tune never heard definitively, but interpolated at the very opening in solo piccolo. And once again here, as Luke takes his first heavy steps towards claiming his future. The pitches in these two moments don't equate exactly, but I wonder whether the general melodic shape and rhythm suggest some common ancestor. At any rate, as Luke seeks solace from Ben, his reply surprises us. It's almost as if he's responding to the just-begun force theme in the underscore. He's resolute and determined to join Kenobi on his quest. Williams then rather brilliantly transforms the leaping segment of the force theme into a powerful transitionary passage landing on a reprise of the jaunty speeder motif. The editing here is swift and clear as we cut to our group standing atop a cliff overlooking Moss Eisley. As we cut to the spaceport, Williams gives us a taste of the space travel possible there, a blast of brilliant trumpet tone, triadic in their upper register. It's a sound we've not heard for a while and one that John reserves for space or space travel. He curbs the brilliance here ever so subtly. Our chord in the brass is a suspended chord, preventing us just barely from a clear major tonality. The beautiful responsory phrase in unison strings is a hallmark of William's writing, here seeming to take that energy from the brass blast back down into the dirt as our heroes jump back in the speeder to head into this strange city. Starting in the 1997 special edition, George Lucas used an excerpt from an unused cue later in the film, the Water Snake, or Dianoga, to fill in the longer running time of the infamous extended special effects sequence. In our original cut of the film, our cue continues in a low-key fashion, with sporadic pulses in the horns, muffled drums, and there it is again, an audible piano, here playing descending and ascending staccato arpeggios. As our heroes approach the Imperial checkpoint, we hear a clever interpolation of the Imperial motif in upper winds. Confronted by the chief stormtrooper, Ben appears to call upon the Force to influence his mind. Williams creates an almost intoxicating seance, featuring a dizzying three-note theme in flute and English horn. Once again, this is a theme never to recur in the 40-plus years of the Star Wars saga. Having successfully turned the stormtrooper's mind, Williams plays the successful drive into the heart of the city with a prominent statement of Ben's force theme, harmonized in a relatively unstable first inversion and supported by an unexpected 3-4 rhythmic accompaniment, all of which seems to keep us on our toes as we prepare to enter this hive of scum and villainy. Source cue, Cantina Band Music 1 and 2. Luke and Ben enter a seedy cantina populated by all sorts of creatures, including a Wookiee who is first mate of the fastest ship in the galaxy. It's difficult to fathom today, but the 45 RPM single of the London Symphony Orchestra's performance of the main title cracked the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100 in 1977. Not the classical charts, not instrumental or easy listening. No, the original recording broke into the top 10 of the pop charts. 
If you flipped that record over, you'd hear the other hit single of Star Wars, Cantina Band Number 1. Previous guest, Mr. Alan Snelling. Do you have any memories of that stretch of music? It was a Saturday, I remember. Gosh, does that help? (laughs) (laughs) That was another area that I completely remember. And um, it was like a three or four hour session on a Saturday afternoon. And we said, well, what's John doing here? And Eric said, well, it's just um, just some source music, you know, background music. So... uh, we didn't see any film at all. They just he, he just wrote this music, and there was, you know, um, we had a few rock guitarists come in. There was a, a keyboard player who was akin to more progressive rock stuff, and I'm thinking, sure. wow, what's going on here? You know, this is weird. And, and we played it all, and it was like, wow, you know, this is this is something completely different. And then um, they put it with the film, and he had to match the guide track with um, some other temp music they put in and everything. And that was that. That was our sort of music, cafe music, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, good stuff. Steel though. drums and synth bass with you know saxophones and clarinets. Yeah. And had an AR, ARP synth bass, I think, playing or something. And yeah. It was very strange. And uh, yeah, it was it was something completely different to what I'd been hearing two or three days before. You know. So. <laughs> wow. Editor Richard Chu remembers asking George Lucas about using Tibetan music for the alien band. In his words, because I think the chanting in the animal bone instruments might really be appropriate. And George said, no, I'm going to use Benny Goodman. And I went, what? And he said, yeah, they're going to play swing, man. This was meant to evoke the old up-tempo swing tunes of Benny Goodman's small combo playing whose famous configuration as the Benny Goodman Quartet featured Gene Krupa on drums, Teddy Wilson on piano, and the famous Lionel Hampton on vibraphone. As Williams mentions, he went to great lengths to assign these bandmates to unexpected alien instruments. You've got what must be the ultimate gig (laughs) band I've ever seen in my life. Steel drums, Caribbean steel drums. They are Trinidad drums, that's right. Uh, The kind of pans, the the Calypso pans. Soprano saxes, I suspect. Drums, normal yeah, drums, normal kit drums. But there's not a bass guitar on this. The synthesizer no, bass. No, synthesizer think, bass. I think it's an ARP. But I mean, how did you go about the? You're presented with the problem of a situation where there is a band playing in vision. <laughs> so you've a got to create the music and b presumably got to advise on what the musicians are going to play and what they're going to. That's look like. right. Actually, I have to credit George Lucas with the idea. He said, "Can you imagine if three centuries from now, under a rock, some musicians found musical parts for?" let's say, a 1935 Benny Goodman swing band mm-hmm. arrangement, this would be their interpretation of how to play that. Because it's kind of a space speakeasy, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's a lovely concept. A lovely so concept. That, was, that was the idea. So I tried to write, you know, one of those sort of early swing-type things with a, with a Cootie Williams-type trumpet and, and the saxophones and the... Uh, I, c- I can only chalk up the Trinidad drum to inspiration. I think I was thinking about Lionel Hampton. You remember his mm-hmm. vibe that he used to play? Well, I thought, what would they play? What sort of a vibe? And I remembered that, that chromatic, not very accurate chromatic Trinidad. No, not very accurate. <laughs> no. Yes, I think it comes under the heading of close, That's right. as far as musical intonation is concerned. The resultant combined sound is immediately unique, alien, and appealing. The principal tune, or head in jazz terms, just might be one of the catchiest little melodies in cinema. Harmonically, it's decidedly minor and swanky, but the strong chord tone-derived pitches and bouncy rhythms of the melody create something playful and almost harmless. I believe that this cantina music is one of the most amazing accomplishments by Williams from this entire first film, particularly because he made that audacious choice of George Lucas to use 1930s swing music fit so securely in a science fiction film. You know, something I've always been delighted by in both the Cantina source cues is the way John Williams harmonizes these tunes. It's almost as though the harmonic language of Star Wars at large has stepped into his approach to musical pastiche. The practice of parallel triadic harmony, as well as these rather unique 20th century classical music chord voicings, when combined with the eclecticism of the ensemble, edifies into a sort of space jazz. I'm always charmed to imagine that the characters within Star Wars exist in the world of the music we associate with the films. The execution of the source music is a masterstroke. It's diegetic, meaning that it comes from the world of the movie, adding color and life to the setting. 
but it's also a wonderful contrast to what takes place in this cantina. As soon as our heroes enter, the droids are asked to leave. We don't serve their kind. Not moments after strolling up to the bar, Luke is threatened, defended by Ben, who in the scuffle ends up dispatching the assailant. The second piece of source music then plays under our hero's first conversation and the audience's first introduction to Han Solo and Chewbacca, pilots of the Millennium Falcon. After a brief cutaway, when we return to the cantina, we continue to hear the jauntier second source music piece, which ends up playing under Han's famous confrontation with Greedo. So much is said about Lucas's goal and filling his space adventure with romantic orchestral underscore, but in this section of the film, he gets to have it both ways, supporting the movie with an almost contemporary 1970s approach, the juxtaposition of entertaining club music with threatening on-screen action. That Williams is the composer of both approaches, and that he moves so gracefully between them is yet another testament to the maestro's taste and craft. Five M6, the inner city. After chartering a ship, our heroes sneakily avoid patrols of Imperial stormtroopers. The score re-enters on a shot of the two droids, preparing 3PO's line, Lock the door, R2. The music is chromatic and tonally ambiguous throughout this sequence, capturing the lurking danger around every corner, opening with a long line wandering melody voiced in octaves in the clarinet family. We transition to an unsettling minor triadic statement in the bassoons as the Imperial troops walk past the door, concealing the droids. This evocative new melodic fragment is sparsely developed during the subsequent sequences, but hits its narrative beats flawlessly. The tune becomes brilliantly presented in muted trumpets, instructed to use fiber mutes. We mentioned in our series of episodes titled The Orchestra about the various kinds of straight mutes. This passage is so significant in my recollection of Star Wars. The way that it weaves the Empire's thematic material together and the ambiguous harmony feel completely singular to this film. The rest of the cue proceeds dually contrasting Luke's theme with a morbid brass motif associated to the Imperial Spy. Luke's theme is presented in a sonorous woodwind unison, English horn, clarinet, flute, and alto flute all doubling the same pitch material. The subtle variations in tuning here lend a sound that is rich with overtones and also ensures a natural acoustic balance for winds in an alto register. Supporting this melody are two harps in unison, supplying both harmony and rhythmic momentum. The top voice in these harp arpeggios provide an attractive counter-melody to Luke's theme. This presentation contrasts so effectively with the ominous brass material that surrounds it. Dense chords in the low register with a sinister chromatic tune score the curious masked imperial spy who seems to be trailing our heroes. This minor imperial idea reaches a dramatic swell in the orchestra as the camera pans across for the revealing shot of the Millennium Falcon. This is another fascinating example of Williams scoring a heroic reveal in a frightening or dangerous way. You may be reminded of the reveal of Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark, or the dramatic cliffside moment at the end of Force Awakens or the beginning of The Last Jedi, where we first see Luke. Such an interesting choice to reveal the Falcon, not with wide-eyed wonder, but with cautious uncertainty. I think that the musical theatrics of this moment are the perfect setup to the joking response of Luke. What a piece of junk! 6M1, blasting away. The crew is forced to speedily board the Falcon as Imperial stormtroopers make their way to Docking Bay 94. After a brief rest in the music, during Solo's introduction of the crew to their ship, we now cut to a shot of armed stormtroopers approaching the docking bay, accompanied by military snare drums and the Imperial motif in Solo tuba. When the troops reach the hooded spy, we hear our final quote of that sneaky theme from the previous cue in Muted Brass, interrupted as the troops run for the hangar. After a couple measures of delicate pizzicato suspense, a blaring brass chord stings the trooper's yell, and the cue turns into a wonderful piece of action music. Williams brings Kenobi's force theme to the fore, colored by speedily dancing ascending lines in the strings, lines that continue to climb until blast off. The Falcon soars out of Moss Eisley to the tune of brilliant ascending triadic trumpets. As we said, this sort of brass brilliance is reserved for space and space travel. 
As we leave the planet and fly into the stars, it's as though we're reintroduced to an almost different orchestra, the Star Wars orchestra of the film's opening action. Even the mix itself seems to transform as we enter space, as though all of the faders are pushed up and we hear a richer, more spatial and ambient sound. What happens next might be considered vintage Star Wars, chromatically climbing triads in the brass, offset by the incessant war march of timpani and low strings. John quotes Ben's force theme high in the violins against this texture, then hands the melody over to the late great Maurice Murphy, principal trumpet of the LSO. As Solo prepares the jump, the Falcon continues to soar away from the camera. The horns begin a virtuosic, triple-tongued feature, which is then passed to the trumpets and trombones, as we cut to a shot of two Star Destroyers in close pursuit. When Lucas brings us into the cockpit, Williams resumes a similar setting from moments earlier, climbing triadic horns set against an incessant low pulse in the celli and bass. In general terms, wide shots of the ships from outer space bring out the virtuosic brass, and cuts back to the cockpit are scored more quietly, but never quitting the pulse in the bottom of the orchestra. As Solo and Chewie prepare the jump, busy tremolando phrases in the violins continue to fret and climb their way higher and higher, set against a more plodding phrase in the trombones. Williams doesn't overly sting the Falcon's ultimate jump into hyperspace, but starts an ascending figure low in the orchestra as Solo punches the hyperdrive, a figure which terminates in a declarative statement of the Imperial fanfare, perfectly in sync to a cut to the Death Star hovering over Alderaan. Once again, William's cue exit is masterful. A disturbing figure in high winds and pitched percussion descends in sequential steps as Princess Leia enters the scene. Here ends part one of our spotting session. Join us next week where we'll pick up from the exact moment we've left off. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I had an absolute blast. If you're enjoying Underscore, we'd really appreciate it if you were to rate and review the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts because it helps new listeners to discover Underscore. Our show is also made possible thanks to our Patreon producers, including Jean-David Blanc, Jordan Kolosinski, Desmond Clark, Alex Death, Charlie McCarran, Travis Anderson, David Liu, Carlos, Benji Inniger, and Jackie Brueggemann. Also, at any level of donation on Patreon, you'll have access to our unabridged interview with Mr. Alan Snelling, the assistant engineer on Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, Raiders of the Lost, Superman, and many more. You can find us on all manner of social media, Facebook, YouTube, and as always, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. Until next time, everybody. And may May the the force be with you. Always. Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers Podcast Network.